have you ever been really, really hungry? You're listening to Casting Lots, a survival cannibalism podcast. I'm Alex. I'm Carmella. And now let's tuck in to the gruesome history of this ultimate taboo. Welcome to episode 5. This time we are joined by Hugo-nominated writer Nibidita Zen and Anna and Luca of the Mayday podcast. We have another guest with us today. Now, any eagle-eyed followers of Casting Lots on other media, there's got to be at least someone out there, may recognise the voice of our next guest from a panel that Carmela was on a few years ago. But I will let her introduce herself. So, Nibidita, who are you? Well, first off, I'm very happy to be here. Uh, yes, I'm Nibidita Sen. I am queer Indian writer of science fiction and fantasy, mostly fantasy, mostly in the horror slash dark fantasy adjacent corner. And a lot of my work deals with themes of food or more generally speaking, hunger and consumption and appetites, particularly which appetites are catered to and which appetites are deemed taboo or monstrous. And sometimes that involves cannibalism. You can see the crossover there emerging perfectly as to why we were like, oh, would you like to come and tell us some more about your work? Yeah, so I think a great place to get started with the conversation then would be your piece that you wrote, I think, in, I want to say 2019. But correct me if that's incorrect. Time has no meaning anymore. (laughs) Some years ago. What was 2019? Five years or like three months? Who knows? 10 excerpts from an annotated bibliography on the cannibal women of Ratnabar Island. Yes, it's a very long title. (laughs) Could you please tell us a little bit about that? Uh, Yeah, so 10 excerpts is, it's a funny piece. It's written in the form of an MLA bibliography, an annotated bibliography, because one of the things I was playing with in that piece was the idea of academia and Uh, racism and colonialism within academia and how the frameworks of academia are used to excuse and prop up colonialism. And I wanted to kind of use the form against itself, to subvert itself and talk about, well, cannibals, but Mm. telling a story pieced together from extracts from these fictional academic papers and articles about cannibals and sort of telling the story in the gaps between those things, the things that are not being said, or the things that are being deliberately left out, Mm. speaking to the story of these women who are cannibals and the ways in which the world reacts to them and what it it means really to be a woman and have an appetite that is deemed monstrous or deviant. Yeah, and I think reading it was so interesting from the Casting Lots perspective because... Obviously, we include a bibliography with every episode, which is a bibliography of cannibalism. And it is it is something that we are often confronting and thinking about in our episodes, that what sources are we using and how are those sources interacting with the stories in a biased way? We'll often get sources that will claim cannibalism can't possibly have happened because these are white Europeans or right. cannibalism must have happened for this purpose because of this culture. And yeah, I think that that's something that your story obviously is talking to and really highlights. Right, yeah, like the sources in that story start with, they start with white European scholars who are writing at a remove, and it slowly transitions into works. It starts with academic articles, and it translate it transitions into things like an article on Bitchpedia, um, or a blog post uh, written by actual diaspora, actual women from this community of uh, this fictional community of cannibals who were taken from their home by colonial British well-meaning explorers. And yeah, just a transition. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, just a transition from here are people, academics writing at a remove from this position of comfortable superiority transitioning into here are people who actually lived it, who are actually diaspora, who are from that community and what it means to them. And one of the 
joys of fiction, especially when it comes to the sort of stories that we end up telling. And I'm, I'll apologise, but I don't really mean it because I'm going to make a really bad pun because that's just what happens here is actually being able to flesh out these stories. Oh. Told you it was bad. <laughs> but a lot of the time, all we have are, I'm going to do it again, the bare bones of Carmela's face, the bare bones <laughs> of the facts. Like, this is what did or didn't happen. This is what someone said about it. We don't actually have the emotions or the feelings and those are often things that we have to read into the narratives that we're telling but of course with your fictional cannibalism with these stories you're able to give that life in a way that really can't be done with real historical events yeah well first off i have ended so many of my conversations on food and science fiction with food for thought that i cannot <laughs> i am in no position to criticize puns and in fact i appreciate puns greatly secondly yeah yeah i mean uh you guys i know you guys deal with survival cannibalism which necessarily means some kind of dangerous situation which not everyone survives mm. right so people might not be able to directly bear witness to what happened but yeah i do in my own work i do really like the idea of pushing back against here is what you were told, but here is someone directly bearing witness and taking back control of the narrative. And maybe in some ways, here's another pun, turning the tables nice. on their oppressors. <laughs> so as Alex said, we're often fleshing out uh, real life cases to tell our stories at Casting Lots. I was wondering, were there any real life inspirations behind your story, whether from history or hopefully from history, but <laughs> maybe in the present day. Yes and no, in that, so my, my story is about this fictional island called Ratnabar, and there's people on that island who practice funerary cannibalism, mm. which is a form of being respect to the dead. Uh, and this is a thing that, that is actually practiced in several cultures across the world, is you eat a portion off the dead as a way of showing respect, as a way of making sure their legacy endures, that you take off them into yourself, and uh, you preserve their memories and their lineage and uh, just honor them. It's a way of honoring the dead. Hmm. So that's what the this tribe, this people in my story does. And while Ratnabar isn't real, I was somewhat inspired by this island of people called the Sentinelis, which is in the Andaman Islands. It is an island of what we call uncontacted peoples, which is that they have had little to no contact with the modern world and have, in fact, mostly violently repelled any attempts to make contact with them, which people have tried to for various reasons, mostly ranging from well-meaning to patronizing. They're mostly missionaries, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the Sentinelis are not, to my knowledge, cannibals. That part I completely made up. Yeah, cannibalism crops up a lot in fiction, and when it's not outright being depicted as this horrifying, monstrous, taboo thing, it often is to the tune of cultural, ritual, funerary cannibalism. One of our other interviewees gave us a rather nice phrase that rang a bell when you were describing the cannibalism of your story, which is called affection cannibalism as a form of emotional connection between the dead and the living so that that rang a bell there as a softer term considering that cannibalism's a loaded word yeah it has a bad rep shall we say i have never heard that term but i love it and i may just like steal it to use forever because yeah that is absolutely what it is it is it's an act of, in the right context, and in the context certainly in my story that's being used, it's, it's an act of respect, of love and affection, of wanting to keep part of someone quite literally with you. I don't necessarily want to go off on a tangent about the Uruguayan flight disaster, but I will, nonetheless. <laughs> no, but just really briefly, it just reminds me of those moments, even in survival cases, such as when Nando gave permission for the bodies of his mother and sister to be eaten if necessary when he'd left the crash site. And it was this ultimate act of love and compassion for his fellow men. So there are more similarities, I think, in the sort of affection cannibalism sphere than necessarily 
just funerary or just ritual or just survival. Right. Obviously, you guys are the experts on things like the Donner Party, right? Like, I won't pretend to be an expert on that. That's you guys' area of expertise. But to my knowledge, there were people in that party who, as they died, begged their children and surviving family members to eat them once they were dead. Because, yeah, it's, it's in many ways, it is the ultimate act of love, knowing that you are dying and wanting those your loved ones who survive you to survive and wanting to give off yourself even past that mm. to make sure they can survive. This is, of course, presuming a context in which consent can be given, which is not always the case. Yeah. It is one of the things that we've discussed before, that cannibalism is one of the only forms of the consumption of meat that can technically be vegan. Yeah. If you give consent. Yes, and it, it need not even result in the death of the person involved. I don't know if you guys heard about this, but there was this case, again, time has no meaning, some amount of years ago where someone lost their, had to have their foot amputated after an accident and like, then had that amputated foot made into chili, which he invited his friends to come over and eat, again, fully with their knowledge. He wasn't, this wasn't something that uh, Arya Stark baking the Frey Lords into Dubai to feed their dad kind of thing. This was fully with their knowledge and consent. And it's in situations like that, it's like, well, it's your, it's literally a part of your own body. Why would you not have, you know, if, if, who, if not you, could give consent or permission for that to be shared? I'm familiar with that story. I think my favorite thing about it is that this man texted all of his friends that he thought would be most up for cannibalism with, do you want to come over and eat my leg? And it's definitely a conversation that we've had with so many of our friends. Like, if I were to lose a leg, do you want to be on the guest list? <laughs> Although imagine the conversation you'll have to have with the doctors to persuade them to let you keep it. <laughs> yeah, I wonder what went into this guy again to take his foot home in an icebox, honestly. <laughs> again, people get to keep tumors that have been extracted. You get to keep your teeth when they're extracted. Mm-hmm. Placentas. Yeah. People eat those. Exactly. It's such a hazy area, really, isn't it? Of what you define as truly cannibalistic. I guess something that like super fascinates me in my work is just the question of why eating flesh is a bridge too far when we're perfectly okay with consuming people in every other way. Mm. Like something I say a lot and that I completely believe is true is that colonialism is the ultimate form of cannibalism, right? Like colonialism might not be literally devouring people's flesh, but it is certainly devouring their country's resources, their country's natural resources, their lives, their hopes, their dreams, their blood, sweat, and tears. You know, it's, it's, it's a consuming, devouring, extractive process in every way. And then we as a culture have built our lives around excusing it and defending it and condoning it and normalizing it. So it's, it's just really interesting to me to wonder why all of that is okay, but then actually going so far as to literalize the consumption is a step too far. I think something that we've come across a lot is that in the earlier European cases of survivor cannibalism, it's normally people going out being colonizers. And often we've found that they've come back with tales of cannibalism in these far-flung countries. And it, I think it's almost, it speaks of a cultural anxiety around being the ones going out and metaphorically cannibalizing other cultures, you say, and also literally cannibalizing one another when they run into hot water. And yeah, I think there's definitely a projection there. And it's interesting that cannibalism as taboo seems to have risen up at around the same kind of time in those European cultures as a sort of deflection from facing up to the reality i guess that's a really good point that's a really smart point yeah and if i may draw a parallel it reminds me of a lot of the well for lack of a better word panic around artificial artificial intelligence or robots in science fiction which Mm. often truly to me seems like it's coming from a place of what if women and minorities treated us the way we treat women and minorities Mm. there's a reason androids and ai are so often feminine or feminized in science fiction right is it seems like it's coming from a place of the same kind of place of here is a race of or a class of beings that we have deemed subhuman and whom we wish to exploit what if they rose up against us and treated us the way we treat them horror that's a really interesting parallel yeah. right definitely wonder if there's something to the fact that oh you know we are aware at some level that we are devouring these people god forbid that the tables be turned on us it came up in 
our almost infamous Douglas Mawson episode as well, the concept of sort of cannibalism by proxy. So the argument with Douglas Mawson is sort of, did he or didn't he? He did. He he did eat. He ate Mertz. Carmella is on the he did. But even if he didn't physically consume him, if he had eaten all of the resources that Mertz will have needed to survive, leading to Mertz's death and his own survival, what is that if not one step away from cannibalism? He didn't physically consume him. He did everything but that final act. He devoured what he needed to survive. Mm. He devoured his chance to live, Yeah, if not directly his flesh. Yeah. It's quite fun looking at sort of how far cannibalism can stretch out. We've had it in terms of how far survival can stretch out, if it's the survival of the body or the survival of the soul, but then how far cannibalism as a definition also has a bit of elasticity. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, the one story I mentioned, 10 excerpts, is the work of mine that most explicitly deals with literal cannibalism, but metaphorical or somewhat metaphor-adjacent themes of consumption and devouring are all through my work. It fascinates me. And what is it about that that fascinates you? If if you don't mind us asking, as fellow fans of the subject, enthusiasts of food. I mean, that's what it comes down to, right? It's like, I really love food. I, I'm not just eat and enjoy because it's food is delicious and why would you not like the glory and the delight and joy and variety and fun it brings but also because food is so inextricably tied to every aspect of our lives like i actually i i have taught a workshop on food and science fiction and fantasy before and um i use this acronym called cager c-a-g-e-r which is class ability gender ethnicity and religion and food intersects with every single one of these, mm. right? Your class, your finances, your socioeconomic background influences how you, your relationship with food and what food you might have access to. Your disability, you ever see people making fun of people for buying pre-peeled garlic? Oh, it drives me absolutely. Calling them lazy. Ability or uh, disability affects your ability to access food or pre-prepare foods. Gender, obviously, food preparation is so gendered. The burden of uh, who prepares food has historically been a super gender thing. Ethnicity, certain, uh, if you're a person of color, you're very familiar with what the way your foods, your historical, cultural foods are called smelly or messy or any amount of things compared to like more traditional European foods, right? Uh, religion, need I even say, like is, is connected to food in so many ways. Uh, but yeah, just food, just like it intersects with every single aspect of our identities and it's, it's so fraught. But it's also something that every single one of us needs. Like we cannot survive without food. We cannot survive without eating. And hunger, the experience of hunger is one of those things that I write a lot of dark fantasy and horror. And hunger is so perfect for that because there is nothing quite like hunger to remind you how fragile the comforts and the protection of civilization is. When hunger comes knocking, at the end of the day, we're all just animals. Mm -hmm. And we're all just meat, no matter how civilized or safe or superior we might think we are. None of us are anything but helpless in the face of hunger when it comes to it. And no matter how superior or civilized or safe we might think we are, none of us are safe from becoming prey or becoming something to be consumed. And so much of the world has predicated its identity on thinking that it could never be prey, that it is the predator. That is, it is the one who sets the table. It is the one who decides what appetites are acceptable, what appetites are catered to, and what appetites are monstrous or deviant, right? Like, I'm a woman. I'm a queer woman. I'm a queer woman of color. I'm very familiar with what it is to have my ambitions, my appetites, metaphorically speaking, ambitions, but also literally appetites and like wanting to eat more, wanting to go in for second helpings. Very familiar with what it is like to have that deemed gluttonous or excessive or just not appropriate for my gender or my sex or my race yeah and it's just I went off on a tangent there (laughs) it was a very good tangent but I guess what I'm trying to say is that it's as somebody who writes a lot of horror and dark fantasy there is this vicious delight in turning the tables on people who have historically been the ones deciding the menu 
And there's something so horrifying by realizing that you might be on the menu. In a way, it's similar to our sort of sheer catharsis when we have two real types of survival cannibalism stories. And in the nicest way possible, they're the ones that Alex and Carmela laugh at and the ones that Alex and Carmela absolutely do not laugh at. And it is that element of catharsis and someone facing their comeuppance and a hubristic mission versus a tragic famine and how we can find a sort of savage delight out of the former and very much not the latter. Absolutely. Completely agree. Yes, when you're from a subset of society that has historically been forced to rein yourself in and restrict yourself, there is, as you said, a savage delight in breaking past that and exercising your appetites, no matter how deviant or monstrous people might label them. It's this idea of identifying what it is that makes a monster in horror and adjacent genres monstrous and identifying with that. Yeah, there's, yeah. I mean, as I like to say, it's a lot of my work is, oh, you think I'm a monster? I'll, I will show you what monstrous means. Love that. <laughs> I do quite like the idea that we're making a sort of feminist statement with our weird little cannibalism podcast. I mean, that's... I think you are. I agree. I also love that. And one of the extracts in my story, 10 excerpts, explicitly says, I don't have the text to hand, but it's something along the lines of men have historically been the arbiters of the discourse and women are the dish to be consumed. Ooh, that's good. Well, I think that that's a beautiful place to finish up on. Thank you. That was amazing. Before we let you go, did you have any upcoming projects that you would like to make our listeners aware of? Hmm. Does it have to be cannibalism related? No, it can be absolutely <laughs> okay. Well, nothing upcoming, but something uh, relatively recent that I released was Strange Horizons did this special issue of short interactive fiction games about sex and sexuality. And I have a piece in there called First Times that's about, well, horomancy and time travel and losing your virginity more than once. <laughs> Amazing. Love the title. That's genius. Love a pun here. Yes. (laughs) So yeah, that's not the Strange Horizons. It's called First Times. And of course, the story we'll be discussing here is that excerpt from an annotated bibliography on the cannibal women of Ratnabar Island. Why did I give it such a long title? It's very academic. It really is. Am I right in thinking that that one's available online? Yes. Yes. It is available at Nightmare Magazine for free. Great. We'll pop a link in the show notes below for everyone to go and read. It is it is a very good read. I do recommend. And we'll also include a link, I believe it will still be live, to a recording of the panel, Cannibalism in Real World and Genre Fiction, which both Nibidita and Carmela took part in. Yes, so if you missed it, you can go and re-watch On Demand. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Nibidita. It's been wonderful. Thank you for having me. This was so much fun. Thank you so much. It's been great. Yeah, I feel like we could have gone for double the time, honestly. There's so much to talk about. <laughs> so much food for thought, if you will. Bye. Beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to Casting Lots Podcast and thank you to Anna and Luca who are joining us today from the Mayday Podcast. Would you guys like to tell us a bit about yourselves and your connection to cannibalism? Yes, hello. So I'm Anna. And I'm Luca. We're cousins from Melbourne, Australia. We host, as said, the Mayday Podcast, Tales of Mystery and Misadventure. So we currently have one season of the podcast out with 15 episodes, which we're pretty proud of. Um, Mostly we talk about exploration disasters, maritime mysteries, or anything we can kind of fit roughly into the topic that we like. (laughs) So exactly our sort of thing. Yeah, 100%. Well, if we're vibing with a topic, that's us. We're talking about it now. Everyone has to listen. They have no choice. There is an episode on the Black Death, which does not fit under our topic at all, but Anna just really likes it. So yeah. (laughs) When you have a non-captive audience over audio, they just got to listen to it. Mm -hmm. I just really love the Black Death. Just a huge fan of diseases. Just really love it. That's all we talk about in this household. It's all tuberculosis and (laughs) plague.
That's all you talk about in this episode. Read the blog. That's great. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Finally, people who understand me. <laughs> I can't believe I'm the straight guy in the room in this in this like context. Yeah. <laughs> You're the weird person who doesn't want to talk about diseases and scary things all yeah. the time. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. Just to give a little plug, uh, we are The Mayday Pod on Twitter and Instagram, and also our website is themaydaypod.com, and we're on you know, Spotify, iTunes, wherever people want to listen to podcasts. I was going to say, may I also say your logo is so snazzy. Thank you. I, I Yeah, that was me. I did a little, like, I don't know, a few days of weird, not Photoshop, cheap online version of Photoshop kind of playing around, and yeah, I sort of settled on that. I'm quite proud of it, actually. It's nice. I like it. Every time it pops up when I'm refreshing and I'm like, oh, something's going to go very wrong here. <laughs> and God doesn't it every single time. <laughs> so I'll give you guys a little bio of just me. I'm a historian and a PhD student, and I'm currently working on a project related to sort of the relationship between health, decolonization and nation building in the Philippines during the Second World War and a bit after. So not at all related to the things we talk about in the podcast, but still fun time. <laughs> if you like, you know, health, disease, and war, and death, I guess. Who doesn't? <laughs> you can get some plagues in there, some pestilence, it all, come, it all comes together. Absolutely. You know I'm just cramming it in with as much disease history as possible. <laughs> Back in 2018, I got super into the Franklin Expedition and a TV show called The Terror, which is also how I kind of got to know Carmel, and that sort of just led a sort of, I don't know, rolling hill, a rolling rock down a hill of various cannibalism stories in history and exploration which led to our podcast yes <laughs> all of that is so true <laughs> if you're the rock rolling down the hill then i am sisyphus uh, struggling daily i uh, yeah i'm luca i'm a writer and history enthusiast but i actually work in accounting <laughs> um i studied a bit of uh, economics and uh, politics and philosophy and history at uni but now i just uh I just vibe and I just make podcasts. You do a lot of cool, creative <laughs> things. <laughs> but yeah, truly this came about because Anna was like, I'm a historian and I was like, I love podcasting. Mm-hmm. So let's try it. Uh, but specifically, so I do have something to admit to the two of you. Mm-hmm. I don't like cannibalism. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like at all. <laughs> I... I just find it quite queeze-inducing, um, <laughs> and that's just all I've got to say on that, really. But I think through exposure therapy, Anna has managed to bring me around to being able <laughs> to have conversations about it without doubling over. Yes, every day I just assault Luca with stories of <laughs> all, like, media about, like, cannibalism or survival cannibalism specifically. So I'm working on it. We're going to have some episodes which are going to make him really struggle. But it's going to be fun for me, and that's what matters. <laughs> you know that we'll be here to help. Yeah. I'm so grateful. <laughs> I love that. She's been trying to make me watch the terror literally since day one, since she got back from the UK. Literally. Yeah, yeah I've been back for well, like a year and a half. Yeah. And in all that time, always I'm just there like, it's coming. It's going to happen. You're going to have to watch it. <laughs> I'll succeed one day. <laughs> I love that combined, you two have the same origin story of why I started this podcast with Alex well why I agreed to start the podcast with Alex which is that I also watched the terror and I also found cannibalism really scary and I would I would (laughs) say that Luca through exposure you can become so comfortable with cannibalism that it freaks other people out (laughs) I'm manifesting this for us (laughs) give us time you will be like this too (laughs) I don't know if I want that. (laughs) Yeah, you have no choice in the matter. I'm going to recommend starting with literature. I'm going to go with the classic, as always, read in the heart of the sea. Don't watch the film. Don't watch the film. We all know my feelings about the film. But if you read the book, it sneaks up on you. And then you're like, oh, that's gross. Oh, that's a really fascinating fact about the Nantucket fishing economy. And then you're like, oh, shit, they're eating each other. You were so right. <laughs> oh, we'll absolutely get Luca in with the fascinating facts about the Nantucket fish economy. Because <laughs> he loves the economic history. <laughs> and then get him. Nathaniel Philbrick is your guy. We have a copy. It's going to happen. Don't you worry. <laughs> he could be your gateway drug. 
I don't know if I want to take a gateway drug. <laughs> <That's the thing. laughs> yeah, still, again, have to emphasize your lack of choice in the matter. <laughs> One day I will, I will make you engage with media that has leeches in it and you will, you will <laughs> i'm so sorry <laughs> that is my phobia that's ugh. yeah no leeches cannot do for someone who loves medical history can't do cannot touch them Blech. that's a tough one <laughs> i feel like they come up a lot <laughs> yeah sometimes if you just like i don't know kind of read around those sentences you kind of get by <laughs> This is this is absolutely how it is for you in cannibalism, isn't it? It's literally that. Yes. <laughs> I mean, we did have some people that were not cannibalism fans at our launch party. They sort of had to sit to the side on a sofa. We were like, "I'm sorry. Here, it, here is our platter of all of the human-themed food that we have on one side, and here are the people that don't like cannibalism who have to sit and talk to each other on the other side while we play a reskinned game of werewolf." It's cannibal. Oh, was it the Donna dinner party or just like a variant on that? It was a game of my own creation. <laughs> oh, incredible. <laughs> I have the Donna dinner party next door. It's so good. Yeah, I've, I have made Luca play that and he struggled through, but it was fun. It was pretty good. I mean, it's just werewolf, but you, you gotta eat people. <laughs> yeah, so. I mean, the werewolves eat people. The improved werewolves. Exactly. But and like, that's it's... cannibalism of a kind. It's different though, isn't it? Because they're werewolves, not people. They're people the rest of the time. Ah. They're furries. They are. They are furries. <laughs> Just like Anna. I'm not a furry. All right. Please, for your listeners, if you include this, I'm not a furry. I like werewolf movies. Luca's mean to me about it. <laughs> well, this bit is going straight in the bloopers. Yeah. <laughs> it's for the best, I think. <laughs> Shall we um, return to uh, Luca's worst nightmare and talk a little bit about cannibalism? I love it. Let's do it. You can do it, Luca. I believe in you. (laughs) I'm I'm trying. Because what I really wanted to ask is I've been listening through the podcast and my question is obviously here at Casting Lots, we think well, we'd be able to go on for more seasons if there were more instances of survival cannibalism. Mm -hmm. But we're quite limited to only covering disasters which feature survival cannibalism. You guys do disasters, which may or may not feature survival cannibalism. So my question is which disaster which didn't feature survival cannibalism A, should have done, and B, would have been improved if it had. <laughs> My main one it goes straight to the Burke and Wills expedition because that was abs. I was fully expecting it as I was listening to that double bill and was genuinely shocked that it didn't happen. You will be unsurprised to know that that was also one of the ones that I was like, yeah, it like it should have like you were literally starving. That was your main problem. I hate to say it, but there was a solution to this problem. (laughs) Yeah. It was so many months. It causes me pain. (laughs) Yes, literally. What were you even eating? And they were just so bad at everything else they'd planned. You'd think that's where their brains would go. Like. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Yes. We we actually have a handful of things between us that we think probably could have and or should have for various reasons. (laughs) Again, it causes me pain, but, you know, I think there is a reasonable point uh, you know at which the lack of food is your issue it's happened before so Burke and Wills was indeed my one of my suggestions would you like me to just like run through like a very brief rundown of what what happened on the Burke and Wills expedition that would be amazing for our listeners who may not have listened yet but will definitely go and listen after this there's a reason that it was two episodes and it was because as I was like reading these books and finding these sources, I was like, Jesus Christ, what the fuck? <laughs> oh, it should be emphasized, especially because your listeners are international and definitely like a lot in the UK where you guys are based. We are Australian. Burke and Wills is not well known outside of Australia, but a lot of us grew up with versions of the story of them, often without some of the grisly details and sometimes a much nicer portrayal of what happened than the historical truth which is that it was 
bonkers and batshit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, as you say, not famous outside of Australia, but I grew up in a town that had statues of both Burke and Wills. So, and it was like a small country town. So, like, they're they're pretty they're pretty everywhere. There's like a massive statue of them actually, like right near uh, the like botanical gardens, the largest gardens in Melbourne. So they are everywhere, and they should not be. <laughs> so essentially, right as Australia was being colonized, there was a reward put up for anyone that could travel from the southern part of the continent up to the Gulf of Carpentaria, which is like the northernmost sea, without dying, and up through the interior. Because of that part had been unmapped by European settlers, and they essentially wanted to know what was in there. Spoilers alert, it is mostly desert and jungle. It is 3,250 kilometers to travel, and this Irish immigrant called Robert O'Hara Burke was selected by this committee, uh, this Victorian exploring committee, to lead this expedition. He was wildly underqualified and an awful guy. And they went, and it went poorly. About halfway up, four guys decided to split off from the group, this massive group that they had. They left camping under this very famous now tree that is called the Dig Tree. And these four guys basically made a break half that distance, like 1,500 kilometers, up to the Gulf of Carpentaria, made it, but they were like almost dead on the way there. And then they had to get all the way back down, which they did not do. They got back to the Dig Tree. One of them had already died at that point, three guys remaining, and they got back to the tree to find that their traveling companions had left earlier that same day. So basically they were fucked. (laughs) And at this point, already starving, they dug up some supplies from underneath the dig tree and decided in their infinite wisdom, instead of traveling back home the way that they had come and the way that they knew, to go off in another direction and to attempt to travel through the desert to South Australia which is just not the right direction along a path that had never been traveled and was not known to anyone other than the indigenous nations in the area who they had been persistently attacking on their travels. Classic. And they basically made it like, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) They basically made it like a couple of Ks and then died on a riverbed of starvation. One guy, John King, survived. He was the only survivor from that leg of the expedition. And it was only because an indigenous nation, the uh, Yandrawanda people of that area, basically saved him and fed him. And the other two died of starvation. And one of them had died, like, earlier than the others. And that is truly where I think cannibalism should have come into play. Like, again, I don't think it should have come into play at all. But if it was going to happen... If there's some spare bodies that are already dead, like, you know... Yeah. <laughs> why are you why are you calling a hundred meters up the riverbed to die alone when there was another there was like there was a supply of food there? Yeah, there were options. Were the bodies found or is there the possibility he did have a little chew down before he died? So they were found and there is no like a written account of there being any chewing happening. <laughs> that being said the like amount of propaganda and like advertising that was happening around this whole thing strong possibility that they found some chewing and they just didn't record it it does tend to come out someone tends to gossip i was gonna say there's so much drama around this expedition and how mismanaged it was so many people were very aware of what a mess it sort of came out of all of it so yeah probably there would have been some kind of indication like to make them look even worse (laughs) it was extremely expensive for its time and all of that money was wasted like a couple of months in and then this went on it was supposed to go on for three years and it only made it to about <laughs> oh yeah why do we have statues of this guy like it's, truly it's so embarrassing that we <laughs> continue to like commemorate these people who just had no qualifications for what they were doing and proved that <laughs> by completely fucking it up <laughs> i do get strong greeley vibes from burke and wills yeah, very much. There's a lack of leadership, shall we say. <laughs> it's so funny, like a little fun fact that I enjoy is on the way up while they were still traveling through colonized areas where small towns were cropping up because it was right during the gold rush in Victoria. Basically, Burke, the leader of the expedition, would stay with like in hotels and with people in their farmhouses and stuff while he left his dudes like camping on the side of the road. <laughs> Guys, yeah, lack of leadership is truly that is the op- that is the word. 
<laughs> yeah, he was the worst. Yeah, he sucked so much. He, dare I say, deserved death. <laughs> <laughs> there is just also something about the fact that, obviously, I know that these are new settlements. It's not quite the same as trekking up the M25 and there being a travel lodge and be like, we are exploring new lands. I'm just going to go to the local hotel <laughs> and then going to, the, you know, the pop-up Tesco's and going to get a microwave meal and do that in my room. We're exploring. And I'm like, you're surrounded by people. Yeah. Yeah, it, it took them two months to travel 750 kilometres and they were travelling along the same road as the Royal Mail, which was travelling these routes at the time. <laughs> and the Royal Mail took two weeks to travel the same path they took two months on. When you're slower than the postal service, that's really embarrassing. <laughs> yeah, it all around an embarrassing chapter in Victorian history, if I may say. One of many. Like, I'm going to be honest. <laughs> our history's not the best. While, of course, here in Britain, our history is, you know, pure and unfettered. <laughs> Britain has never done anything wrong in its life, ever. <laughs> Should be noted that at this point... You know, all still British people in a British colony. So yeah, yeah. that was British people doing this too. Congrats. <laughs> yeah, Burke was an Irish immigrant who had worked for the police in Dublin. And then worked for the police in, in, Victoria. in Victoria. Yeah, he was a cop. Yeah. <laughs> Just goes to show. So were there any other disasters other than the infamous Burke and Wells? And I keep wanting to say Burke and Hare because obviously... Here in the UK, Burke and Hare are the body snatchers, but it's Burke and Wells. Yep. Anyone else who could have, should have, would have done a cannibalism? Well, I feel like Burke and Wells is definitely the most egregious <laughs> case of the uh, of the topics that we've covered. I was going to bring up briefly the Scott expedition mm -hmm. because it's that's obviously a very well discussed, well understood um, expedition. But for those who don't know, Robert Falcon Scott led an expedition in Antarctica, 1910 to 1912 slash 13, but he died in 1912. Various like members of the expedition were going on their different little parties, doing a lot of scientific exploration, lots of interesting stuff. But Scott's team go to the South Pole, realized they got there about a month after Roald Amundsen, <laughs> didn't get to be the first ones there. On the way back, a lot of things went wrong and they all, of the, you know, several men left, they all slowly died. That being said, <laughs> they died one after another in succession and, you know, like were slowly losing energy, didn't have food. They had missed a um, drop of food that had been left sort of further along. So there were certainly several points there when you think maybe, like, I know you're all noble Englishmen, but you could have had a little like chomp. You know, <laughs> noble Englishmen love to have a chomp is one thing that we've learned. Yes, exactly. Your podcast is fact, like just shows multiple times they've done the chomp. This time, uh, I don't know. Come on, Scott. <laughs> See, does that improve your opinion of Scott or, or the opposite? No, I respect the practical man. <laughs> like he was there writing his little journals. He could have been, you know, having a little meal. <laughs> Making sure his like fellow men were fed. <laughs> Scott's always one that surprises me as well, that there's not even any whiff of it around. Because obviously the South Pole one that we've covered at Casting Lots is Douglas Mawson, who, again, there's no hard evidence that cannibalism happened, but there were at least rumours. Whereas Scott, it seems like, yeah, no, maybe it just didn't happen but you have to wonder, did it cross their minds? And then they decided not to? Yeah. I mean, if, if... I feel like if you're very hungry and there's a dead body there and you've heard the stories, you've got to at least be eyeing it up. Well, I, what we know is right that like three of their bodies were found, obviously because they'd all died very close together. But I don't think they ever found Captain Oates' body. I can't actually remember exactly. But he left earlier, disappeared in a blizzard. Did he leave? <laughs> or... I'm just stepping outside. Yeah. <laughs> I may be some time. Oh, could that all be an illusion? Could one of the most famous quotes in exploration history have been completely made up, which also a possibility regardless <laughs> of cannibalism, but could have been completely made up to hide some cannibalism? <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> Based on 
no historical evidence, <laughs> we are going to imply Captain Oates was eaten by his fellow His explorers. name was Oates. <laughs> it, it's a food name. <gasps> <laughs> they just got confused. They didn't know what was going on. You know, when you, you know, you're so hungry, you picture people as food. They just saw a massive bowl of porridge. <laughs> oh, my God. This is it. This is the point we do the third revision of the Scott <laughs> history and have a new wave of <laughs> literature about the cannibalism. <laughs> We're still finding Arctic cannibalism stories. They're out there. We just need to, you know, melt some ice. Why not change? <laughs> <laughs> oh god the world's going down the toilet environmentally but at least we might find some bodies and evidences of cannibalism i think you have a couple more of uh, potential cannibalism candidates i have one final one for myself i don't know if you know much about the batavia i love the batavia sorry that was a very weird reaction <laughs> <laughs> but it's exactly what we'd expect from you alex <laughs> yeah yeah with love, that is being said. <laughs> Can I say briefly before Luca explains the notes of Batavia that I I mentioned this in our episode, but I went to the replica of the Batavia that's in the Netherlands. And when I was there, I was there with my young stepbrother who at the time must have been about 11. And we definitely had to do some explaining <laughs> of what some of the like text on the wall all meant when you're reading the like little history of it and yeah there's a lot of shielding of eyes and kind of ferrying child along <laughs> i've lent you the book carmella i don't know if you've read it yet i haven't read it yet oh. so luca please fire away and be my introduction watch carmella's face it's 1628 the dutch east india company is doing its thing and they build a new flagship they call it the batavia are named after their capital in the Dutch East Indies, uh, which is now modern-day Jakarta in Indonesia. They loaded up with 341 people, some mercenaries, some sailors, merchants, civilians. There's a whole host. There's a few sexy women as well. Mm. Key to the story. Yes. yes. Un unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> Horrifyingly important. One main sexy woman gets through all right. Well, she she gets through. I, I don't know they're all right. <laughs> The trauma would be free. I'll stop interrupting. I'm just excited. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> it's excellent. Among the crew is a gentleman called uh, Geronimus Cornelis, which I'm almost definitely pronouncing wrong with my with my Australian accent. <laughs> I don't think he deserves to have his name pronounced properly. <laughs> At the time, he was already a convicted Satanist. He was a bankrupt apothecary and heretic who was fleeing Holland at the time. While they're on the way over, they are initially with a fleet of seven ships and they, a couple of them lose sight of themselves in the storm. And then the world's worst mutiny <laughs> breaks out on the way over to Batavia. It's truly like, as I was reading their plans, I was like, <laughs> you guys are the dumbest fucking people. <laughs> Just awful. It's such a awful mutiny breaks out, led by Cornelis and the captain of the ship. And basically, the captain of the ship, as part of the mutiny, steers the Batavia off course intentionally, just in a direction. And this is 1628, so Australia had not officially been discovered. They were heading directly for the coast of Western Australia, but had no idea what was there. Like, they just assumed it was open water and they were probably going to hit, like, I don't know, South America or something. Like, truly <laughs> no idea. One fateful night, the ship Batavia strikes a reef and begins to sink. And it spends the next week sinking slowly into the water. And the crew, I don't even know if I want to go into the orgy, but they have an orgy that night <laughs> because they think they're all going to die the next day because they can't see that a hop, skip and a jump away is a small island. <laughs> they cannot see in the nighttime. Waking up, seeing the island, they're like, oh, amazing, great. Let's unload. The <laughs> Let's never talk about this orgy again. <laughs> 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 the world's most awkward morning after occurs they see an island <laughs> okay hmm. just but buttoning up the breeches putting the big flouncy jacket back on truly like it must have been like surely <laughs> anyway incredible fact is that Cornelius was actually afraid of water so he spends the next week on the boat refusing to go into the water to swim to this island or take a boat to this island. 
but finally, when the Batavia is like literally breaking apart beneath his feet, he, he gets over there. Uh, I think it's like 40 people die drowning, uh, trying to wade slash swim to this island. Like it's a huge number, which like, yeah, but also like really? Guys, backstroke. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> the complete disrespect from Australians. Where Wear your pajamas and flutes. Yeah. <laughs> Just find a plank and like you know hold it over it's fine you're on a boat like <laughs> i don't know what you were expecting cornelius gets over to the island there's already been like a small camp set up turns out the commander of the ship who was not part of the mutiny obviously uh has already taken a boat and a bunch of people and sailed for batavia the city to find help and or just to get away so he's gone cornelius is now the ranking officer slash sailor on this island, so seizes power and basically goes ape and like starts just killing so many people. Like like anyone that disagrees with him, it, yeah, like it's it's it, it's considered Australia's first serial killing. That's how like absolutely awful it gets. I've heard it referred to as Australia's first civil war. Mm. That's Ooh. fun. That's good. Yeah, I like that. That is that is very fun. There was almost certainly other civil wars we just don't have them recorded. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's definitely indigenous conflicts that like yeah. no one like talks about or includes in that. But anyway, uh, classic Australian history. Yeah. No, yeah. no, no. It's almost definitely called that, but like that's only because Australian history is very racist. Yeah. Cornelius, basically, they don't have enough food to sustain themselves, and he decides that he wants to become a pirate king. <laughs> So we all have that ambition. I mean, that was part of the reason <laughs> for the mutiny. Oh, okay. He wanted to be a pirate mm, king. Mm. Well, you, I mean, you're saying this guy is awful, but so far I'm hearing Satanist and wannabe pirate king, and I'm thinking icon. But <laughs> apart from all the murders, yeah, yeah. See, we thought the same. <laughs> yeah, that that bit we definitely are enjoying, yeah. and then yeah, the murders. So many murders really starts mm. to like dampen the his cool guy of uh, image. Yeah, so uh, it's it's not. <laughs> Have you got the bit where he makes his followers sign in blood that they're always going to obey his oath? I I I, I didn't have that in the notes, but I'm <laughs> glad that you mentioned it. <laughs> yeah, basically he's he's like a psychopathic tyrant. So um he, he they don't have enough food, so he starts just like sailing people out onto smaller islands around the place, and then just like leaving them there, being like. Oh, we'll be back later. No intention of returning. Uh, so they all start starving. Light a fire if you find water. Yeah, classic. So they, they're starving. And then he decides that's not fast enough. Uh, and also there are people that have not been obeying his every wish. So he sets up a hospital tent. But if you go there injured, he just has you killed. <laughs> and... <laughs> that's one way to solve it. Uh, which is just... Early medicine is really <laughs> whack. Like... <laughs> yeah. And, like, I should not underemphasize, like, that his followers and himself are, are, like, committing horrific crimes mm. all throughout this. Like, they're not just killing people, but they're doing it in awful ways. They are assaulting the women repeatedly, you know, treating them as slaves. They kill a baby, like, as, like, it gets as bad as you can think. Like, it's real bad. And then there's, like, this whole kerfuffle with <laughs> he sails a bunch of more experienced mercenaries out to an island and is like, mm, find water, light a fire if you do. And they do the unthinkable and they actually find water and they light the fire and he doesn't come back because he intended them to die. It's like, oh shit. Yeah. <laughs> so they set them, led by a guy called Hayes, they set themselves up a camp and they're like trained mercenaries. So they actually know what they're doing. <laughs> and that is where, that's where the fighting breaks out. And there's basically just like a whole back and forth. It's a whole thing. And then- They have a civil war. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then at the 11th hour- the captain of the ship Jakobs comes back, sailing from Batavia, the city, mm. on a boat, the Sardam, I think it is. A ship. He, Sorry. Yeah, on a ship, I should <laughs> You're oh, correct. We constantly re affectionately refer to all ships as boats in this household, <laughs> just to be annoying. <laughs> so apologies, Alex. <laughs> I've only just trained Carmela. <laughs> it's a boat, that's all. Uh, she's, a big, she's a big boat. She's a big boat. I'm leaving. <laughs> I'm leaving the recording. <laughs> uh, Sardar rocks back up. Long story short, has all the mutineers tried for mutiny and uh, uh, killed? I think it's all of them killed. Alex might be able to... One of the ones who gave witness and the youngest are both not 
executed, they are instead the first white settlers of Australia. Yes. Because they are just dumped on the mainland and being like, look after yourselves. Yeah. Uh, which, iconic of Yaka, to be honest. They dump them off this the coast of this unknown land that they've just discovered. discovered quote, quite literally crashed into. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Isn't that how all discovery works? Kind of. <laughs> you just sail till you hit a place, you know? <laughs> it happens. The moon. But it, it, the story continues because they head back to Batavia and the most beautiful woman on the boat who had suffered an awful experience... I believe it was her baby that was killed, gets tried for inciting the mutiny. Yeah, like, in court. And basically, she is acquitted, but, like, not by much. And also, there was an application submitted to the court to torture her for information, and it is not, I I believe it is not substantiated, it's not known whether or not it was granted or whether it was denied. So, possibly she was tortured as part of that trial, but she gets acquitted and lives. So traumatised. And uh, one of the reasons why women were not allowed on boats after that. It takes us one bad apple. (laughs) (laughs) Temptresses and hearts. There's no rule against Satanists. (laughs) No, no. (laughs) In fact, they should be in positions of command. (laughs) I'm just baffled by the power structures of the Dutch East India Company that they're like, hmm, we've made this state-of-the-art flagship. We're going to put... And this guy in charge who's fine, and under him, second in command, is just the worst guy you've ever heard of. <laughs> a, a bankrupt apothecary and convicted Satanist. <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? So yeah, that that is such a messy story that you would be really unsurprised to hear there was cannibalism in there, wouldn't you? Yeah, see, it's the it's the fact that they were killing people because they didn't have enough supplies for the long term. Like that is not the whole reason, obviously. They were killing people because they enjoyed it. That was one of the reasons that was And because he was batshit insane. Yes. Absolutely. So it's kinda like we're already killing them. Like like they're there. The bodies are there. You're hungry or concerned. Like, just go for it. But it's like they were making such detailed records of everything that was happening that to the extent of, huh, this is how we poisoned the baby and mm. then it didn't work. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's one of my favourite parts. Yeah, he, he was such a bad apothecary that he tried to poison a baby, which, like, they're so fragile. Like, you, so you give babies, like, the wrong temperature of milk and they're sick. Like, he tried to poison this, it didn't work. Like, he actually couldn't even poison a baby. <laughs> Lame apothecary can't poison a baby. Come he on. had someone else kill it. <laughs> yes, yeah. But yeah, as you say, like, they were keeping a super detailed record, so they for sure, I mean, not for sure, but they probably would have mentioned if they'd been having a nibble. Or there'd be some rumour or something. Yeah. And they found a lot of yeah. bodies. Well, I found a lot of skeletons. It's like, I have two fun Batavia mm. facts. And by fun, I mean, that's a dubious definition, but we're all <laughs> friends here. The first is, percentage-wise, Batavia has a higher death toll than Titanic. If you look at the number of people who set out versus the number of people who came out the other side. Yeah, which is 341 set sail on Batavia and only 122 survived. More fatal than Titanic. Yeah, that's pretty <laughs> bad odds. But now it's a lovely, verdant green island because the soil was filled with the bodies of the dead i feel it was darwin because it's always darwin he's rocking around and looking at things classic but i feel like 200 years later it was darwin who was like that's a wonderfully beautiful island and it's like yes it's been watered with blood (laughs) (laughs) bet there's lots of food on it now (laughs) The, the australian archaeologists are really having a time over there there's lots to dig up. It's nicely protected, though. They keep it in the back. Every time like, a fisherman digs up a skull, they just put it back. <laughs> They're like, not dealing with that today. Like, they've sort of worked out who some of the people were by, like, the records and by the note-keeping. It's like, hmm, that was a man who got hit by an axe. Um, luckily, we have these notes that say that a man got hit by an axe in this location. And then they just be like, there you go, Geronimus, <laughs> you stay there. They just put them back. <laughs> You've got to love some excellent record keeping, even amongst murdering mutineers. Yeah. It 
it's like they were thinking about us. I'm so grateful. <laughs> you know, if you wanted to, to, to be a pirate king, then you got to have a good administration. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. But yes, that is the Batavia. A very, very, very brief overview of it. Uh, there are many things to say about it. If you want to hear more, check out our podcast episode on this. Also, in which Luca is in pain the entire time. It's just like it's just the incompetence and like matched with the psychology. Yeah. Following that very excellent, horrifying story. This one I'm just mentioning because I am really obsessed with Himalayan and mountaineering history. That's come up a lot in the podcast. Mm. And we did a two-parter on the Yeti. Moreover, it's kind of about how the Western idea of the Yeti appeared, the history of mountaineers who claim to have seen it, that kind of thing. The little tidbit I wanted to mention about that is that one of the theories about what the Yeti could be was that it was local people who had been exiled or had been tried for crimes and just sent out of the sort of um, wherever they were living, whichever village, etc. And were just living in the mountains off scraps. And there's this uh, sort of Western spread idea that maybe these people were the Yetis and they were either attacking or even eating other people. But I think it's pretty obvious that this was just a racist colonial uh, <laughs> theory and that almost definitely that wasn't the case at all but I thought I'd mention it it's a fun little you know once people thought this was cannibalism kind of thing good fun that reminds me of our episode on Yermak Timofeyevich in the Russian Ural Mountains which also in passing through the mountains there are rumors that the local people would eat anyone who walked through so perhaps a common theme in mountaineering very much if it's white people doing the mountaineering, they're assuming that the local people yes. are trying to eat them. <laughs> Actually, just a common theme in all colonial exploration now that I really reflect upon it. <laughs> Very true. Well, it's like if we're doing it, they must be doing it too. <laughs> yes, I think it's projection. That's what I think it is. <laughs> now, I think we could keep going forever, really. But I think we do have to wrap up where we are today so Anna and Luca is there anything that you would like to plug to our listeners any upcoming projects any season two news we don't have the exact date for when season two will come out but we are in the process of sort of doing the research and should be soon recording our uh, first episode in the next season mm. so you guys will enjoy this we are going to be starting off with the Franklin expedition <laughs> and doing it Yay! in several parts because there is so bloody much to say <laughs> yeah and uh, later on in the season i'm excited to be delving into uh amundsen and i'm gonna just do his whole life because like what did that guy do that wasn't super interesting <laughs> absolute king I can't wait to listen to those. I'm very excited to hear that. Um, we'll put a link to the Mayday podcast in the show notes, or you can look it up on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, etc. So do go listen, dear listeners. Yeah, yeah and uh, all that information is at themaydaypod.com. Or the Mayday Pod on Instagram, Twitter, and occasionally a Tumblr that we don't really update enough. <laughs> <laughs> a Twitter that we should really tweet from more. Yeah, really the Instagram's where it's at. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining us. It's been great having you. This has been absolutely fabulous. And thank you for joining us from Australia. We have had to do a lot with time zones, <laughs> but we're digitally all in the same room. <laughs> yeah, it was really great to do this recording. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to today's episode featuring Nibadita Sen and the Mayday podcast. Join us next time for all your cannibalism questions answered. Casting Lots podcast can be found on Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr as at Casting Lots Pod and on Facebook as Casting Lots Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate, review and share to bring more people to the table.
Casting Lots, a survival cannibalism podcast, is research written and recorded by Alex and Carmela, with post-production and editing also by Carmela and Alex. Art and logo design by Ashley, at Tallest Friend on Twitter and Instagram, with audio and music by Daniel Wackett, Daniel Wackett on SoundCloud and at DSWack on Twitter. Casting Lots is part of the Morbid Audio Podcast Network. Search hashtag Morbid Audio on Twitter and the network's music is provided by Michaela Moody. Michaela Moody 1 on Bandcamp. Morbid Audio Podcast Network. Um, we did want to check something before all of this. Can we swear or not? Because we... Swear but bleep it in our normal podcast. Swearing is allowed. You can swear. <laughs> Amazing. Incredible. Excellent. Fantastic. This podcast is Australian friendly. Thank <laughs> God. Yeah, I think we've marked it as explicit just because of the, 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 the cannibalism. So um, anything goes. Point, yeah. <laughs> Nothing's off limits. That's a tagline. <laughs>